Welcome to The Inside. As we kick off 2023, the cinema industry has finally had a chance to spread its wings with James Cameron's Avatar, The Way of Water. At just under $2 billion after just 30 days, Avatar has now passed Top Gun as the biggest film of the year. And while most movies decline in box office totals each passing week at the cinema, Avatar actually increased its box office revenues in week three. I am Jim Chabin in Los Angeles, and with me is Wim Byens. He serves as CEO of Sanionic, and he joins us live from Brussels, Belgium, where it's evening. Good evening, Wim. Hey, good morning, Jim. Well, Wim, we've been talking about Avatar for a, a year. A long time, yes. <laughs> a long time, and That's we've right. had our hopes up that this would be something that would be well-received. And um, when you see the uh, numbers now, we're at $1.9 billion and counting. Stunning, it's yeah. uh, about to overtake Spider-Man No Way Home, which did about a billion nine. Then uh, Star Wars at $2 billion. But this movie continues to generate significant box office uh, week after week, and that's kind of encouraging, isn't it? No, it, it's fantastic. It was great for the closing of last year, and I think it's a great opening for this year too, right? That continuing that. And I think that a movie like, like Avatar, which you know has a, a big expectation, it's always tough, right? Uh, how is it going to pan out? And I think being able to um, hit the expectation is, is fantastic. So I think we all were very thrilled because, of course, Avatar has also a lot to do with, with technology and other things, right, which they, they're showcasing. So we're very thrilled uh, to come out and to see the results. The other encouraging piece of news is what's ahead. Uh, we just got a, a, a list from uh, our friend Paul Dergerbedian at Comscore. And, yep. you know, Ant-Man in February, then Creed 3, and then Shazam, John Wick 4, uh, Super Mario Brothers, Guardians of the Galaxy 4, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, Mission Impossible from Tom Cruise, Oppenheimer, Barbie, uh, Haunted Mansion, Dune Part 2, Hunger Games, Ghostbusters, Aquaman, um, just to name a few of the movies that are in. Yeah. Can we get back? Do, do we feel like 2023 is the is the year things kind of recalibrate? The way I like to phrase it always is says we're going to grow versus 2022, right? So that I think is first objective. And I think every year we need to make sure we, we grow and sustainable grow. And that looks with the content pipeline you just mentioned looks very, very doable. Uh, so, so we're very uh, much believing, you know, that that's going to be the case. Now, some titles do better in some territories than others, but we do think we're going to get, with the lineup, uh, going to get very close. Real quickly, what are you hearing from our colleagues, your colleagues in China? How are the your partners in China uh, doing? Yeah, I, I was with them on the phone very recently here. So um, the good news is that, that, I mean, China is or has opened the doors, right, kind of thing. Uh, I do believe that it also going to enable more of the Hollywood content to go to China after the uh, very tough COVID period. And I do know that, I mean, China New Year is is, is coming up, uh, you know, in a few weeks uh, where they, they have lined up a lot of titles, also China titles. And Avatar, by the way, does pretty well in China too, right? So in general, it, it, I think it's a good start of the year that they opened up and that will enable us to, uh, to get more people enjoying this great content. Well, speaking of Avatar, that's uh, going to be the conversation on our show today. Absolutely. Jim, we have two excellent guests uh, to take us behind the scenes of Avada today. Stephen Rifkin and John Rafua were nominated for the Academy Awards for the editing of the first Avatar movie in 2009. Mr. Cameron brought them on board again for the latest blockbuster, Avatar The Way of Water. Welcome, Stephen and John. Thank you very much for having us. I just want to say there's a 
There are two members of our editorial team missing today that we are speaking for the team. One is obviously James Cameron himself, who was an editor on our project. And the other is a wonderful person who we lost in February of 2022. His name was David Brenner, an Oscar-winning editor that we brought on very early on to help us get this incredible feat to the screen. Thank you for mentioning David. He certainly has left a, a magnificent legacy, and I'm, I'm sure everyone is incredibly proud of his work. Most editors come at the end of a production process, but this one was very different, right? So tell us a little bit about it. How early did Jim bring you guys on, on board of the movie? And tell us about the journey from the first call to today. I was brought on early to work on story reels and art reels, but John and I have been on Avatar 2 and working on 3 and a little bit of Avatar 4 for over five years. And unlike other films, as you said, the editorial process happens simultaneously to production or shooting of the film in dailies form. We, however, are brought on during the capture, the performance capture phase of the film. So the film is shot and edited at least twice. Shot is kind of a not the correct term because capture is not really shooting. It's documenting the actor's performances using reference cameras on a what we call a volume where the actors are captured in an empty stage. So we take this reference material and we use that as a guide to put together the very best performances of each actor in a scene. And sometimes that involves combining actors from different takes. So we build a performance edit of every scene after careful review with Jim. And then the whole film exists in capture form. And then at a much later stage, after all of that is processed and all the virtual assets are brought in, then and only then does Jim generate the virtual cameras that make up the scenes that would eventually go to Weta for finishing. Now, for the very first time, we have dailies that you would have in a normal movie that we would cut as editors. So there's a whole process that comes before that virtual photography can take place. So that that's in a nutshell, the crazy uh, preparation process that we go through. John, did I leave anything out? That process can be years long, two, three years from the point where we do the capture with the actors to the point where Jim points his virtual camera and generates, you know, dailies basically that we can cut like a normal movie. So during that time, you know, we're working on different scenes at different stages. So he may approve a scene and start shooting on that, but his virtual cameras, he may, there's a lot that goes on and we are just, you're never sitting down going, well, what should I do now? How did your experience of the first Avatar help you on the sequel? Did your previous collaboration with Jim give you room for interpretation uh, and imagining on this production? You know, every time you did work with a director, there is more that you learn about what they want. And having worked with them three years before, it really gave both Steve and I a way to interpret 
as the scenes are developing and say, okay, no, he's not going to like this. He's not going to like that. He will like this. And I think that really helped a lot. We wouldn't have known that until, unless we had worked with him on the first movie. Having gone through the experience once, both John and I and Jim learned a lot from Avatar 1. And there's a steep learning curve. And David Brenner picked it up very quickly uh, because he's he was incredibly bright and dedicated and just was committed to conquering this process and understanding it and getting a good grasp of it. So we were able to pass on to David the knowledge that we learned from Avatar 1. And when we finished that movie, we thought that we had a good basis to, to proceed with the sequel if it, if it happened. Things got a bit more complicated with the number of characters written in the script, the combination of live action and virtual, and the the added layer of dealing with unprecedented underwater performance capture. That was something incredibly new, never been done, and Jim pioneered that. There are these wondrous moments in the film where the visuals are so stunning that those of us in the audience were marveling at the fish swimming by and and just enjoying. It seems like Jim and you were just allowing us all to take this in, and that seemed different than a lot of movies. Can you tell us whether that's, in fact, what you wanted and and why and what 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 that process was like? There was a lot of discussion about that, uh, how long we should stay there and how long that whole, you know, living underwater, learning how to do things underwater, learning how to, you know, ride the, the creatures. There was a lot of discussion about how long that should be. And, you know, we settled on something with Jim's rather uh, insistent point of view that we should let the audience enjoy this. And uh, he was right. It all worked out really well. To the point about the underwater uh, photography, we've seen these pictures and these uh, the actors in the tanks and being photographed. And what did adding the underwater element to all of this uh, present, uh, challenge-wise, for the world building that you were you were trying to create? Well, I think one one of the things was when we do performance capture it is imperative that we have good reference of every character and the reference camera. we have, you have to understand there are like 16 people standing around with high definition cameras, everybody assigned to a different character. The underwater capture presented challenges with getting good, clean reference of these actors' performances. So there were underwater divers with cameras and there were windows in the tanks that could be shot through, but you couldn't really have scuba tanks or things because you couldn't have the bubbles. So this was really, people had to hold their breath for minutes at a time when they were doing takes. And then editing created its own challenge because sometimes we stitch things together. And spatially, when you have a mark on the floor that an actor can hit all the time, it's easy to to put things together or combine takes with different actors because you understand where they are spatially. Underwater, it presented some challenges with how the actors related to each other. If we were combining takes or stitching performances together, we had to work very closely on this kind of this added layer to 
map out where the characters were underwater. And they had these incredible devices, you know, when when actors are on Elu and Skimwings, the creatures that they rode in the film, they had uh, like jet devices underwater to propel them. So you're actually seeing the actors being moved through water and the impact of the water on their faces, their wardrobes, their hair, everything. So, so that that could be accurate to the underwater performance when they're moving. So it was very complicated. Let me add another dimension which you guys have been mastering, right? This film instituted variable frame rates, right, in the production. Some shots were done at 24 frames per second, other shots were done at 48 frames per second. What was behind the decision and how did you guys, how did it help it with the storytelling, in your opinion? And, and what's your view with the effect it has on the audience? Well, first of all, the, the reason behind it is simply two words, James Cameron. <laughs> James, James was determined to deliver a hybrid movie that had high frame rates where he felt it was necessary. And it began with just, you know, the idea that when people saw Avatar 1, and no, nobody had done a 3D movie at two hours and 38 minutes, so... It was it was something we weren't sure. Was it were people going to be fatigued by the 3D? Was it going to be something that they could tolerate? And it worked, but there were people that said on pans and fast action there was some strobing that exacerbated their uncomfortable feeling about 3D. And he wanted to eliminate that. He wanted to make the 3D experience immersive and not have any negatives. Jim came up with this, you know, the the point of diminishing returns was after 48. There was no reason to go 96 or or higher or whatever. He said 48 does what he needs to do. And he made a decision early on to do that for any shot that was potentially strobing. And then he also extended it to underwater shots because he wanted the clarity and reality of being underwater. And it was really his decision and his commitment to fulfill that promise. So it, so it, it just made a smoother, more elegant impact on the eyes of the, of the audience to watch it in this, in this way. Yes. Is this, would it be fair to say this is the most complex production that's ever been mounted? I, I think that, John, don't you agree? I've, I've said it before. I don't think there's a more complicated way to make a movie because of the all of this incredible front-end work that goes into preparing the scene files for virtual production. The thing that people have to recognize is that everything you see, every actor's performance, even the people in the background, was, was captured by an actor doing it. So it's not, you know, even for the background characters, people didn't go and say, well, let's put this expression on his face. There was a background character and we picked the face, or Weta picked the face that goes, and uh, all the body motion has been captured. Everything basically that you see has been done by an actor. Our guest insiders today are editors Stephen Rifkin and John Rafua. We'll be right back. The Insiders is proudly presented by Cineonic. 
Cineonics Future Ready Enhanced Services and Technology Solutions provide compelling cinema experiences, peace of mind, and financial flexibility. Today, with more than 95,000 projectors installed globally, cinemas around the world trust laser projection by Cineonic to power the next generation of movie going. Visit Cineonic.com today and discover why theaters look to Cineonic to provide the solutions of tomorrow today. Our guest insiders today are editors John Rafua and Stephen Rifkin. Their film, Avatar The Way of Water, carries a 92% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, and it's number one at the box office. There are remarkable scenes with live actors interacting with virtual characters. The look is seamless. How are you guys able to make it so believable and so brilliant? One extra complication in the challenge of combining live action with virtual characters is that Spider, played by Jack Champion, acted the entire film twice. He did it in capture form, and we created the template of his virtual character in the scenes, in every scene with the other characters in the film. So he was a virtual character. And that became, once we committed to a cut on every one of those scenes, that became the blueprint for going and shooting the live action elements of his character to insert into the virtual scenes. So that was a whole other phase of live action where we were literally playing back the other actors' performances and he was acting to them and sometimes uh, seeing their faces projected on a little monitor. They created an eyeline system so he knew where to look because the Navi were much taller than a normal person. So he had to know where his eyeline was and he could actually play to an actor's playback on a little floating monitor where their head would be. It was quite extraordinary. The there's another piece of technology that people just would never know existed watching the movie. Would it be fair to say, is, is this movie or was this movie possible to be made 10 years ago? And how much is this film an evolution of technology versus the first one in 2009? I think it's very much an evolution. And every could this exact film be made? No, uh, I think absolutely every year Weta gets more proficient at photorealism for characters, environments. I mean, what they achieved in this film with photorealism, we didn't have in Avatar 1. I mean, there were hints of how far you could go, but I, I think that Avatar 2 presented, if I can use the pun, a high water mark, because what they did with CG water I don't believe has ever been accomplished before. It's truly amazing. And if you looked at a shot and you, I think most people would say, well, that's obviously real water and virtual characters. Well, it's not, it's, it's CG water. Is there a moment when you're working on a project like this and you've been so immersed for so many years, but in your mind, you can start to see the finished film, that it all comes together in your mind and you go, I know what this is going to be like. Or are you so focused on today's piece of getting it right that you really don't have the luxury of allowing your imagination to, to put together the way it's going to look in the end? Well, like I, like I said earlier, 
the movie is actually in different stages of being finished as we're going on through the years. So we would get a scene back from Mura that's almost final. And we could see, oh, I see how it's going to be. That's going to be great. And that's what they're going to look like. And this is what the tattoos are going to be. So we would have an idea of what it's going to be. But you're never prepared for that final shot that comes from Weta. And you look at it and you go, geez, that's really something. you got to give it to them. Nobody can do this stuff better than Weta. Nobody knows how to do this stuff better than Weta. So, yeah, we were always surprised by the final. Yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I'll tell you one of the things that's just thrilling, as much as you try to imagine and as detailed as the template is that we turn over, there is nothing as gratifying as seeing the final render and seeing the performances that you picked sometimes two, three years ago. And suddenly, in all of their glory, the actor's performance is back in every little detail, in their faces, in their eyes, in their expressions, in the wrinkles in their forehead. It is truly phenomenal to, to see that come full circle. The remarkable thing about a movie like this is that it moves audiences at a very strong level, and you use so much technology. As editors, how do you hold on to the emotional part of this story so that that's not left on on the audience? I'm just amazed at how Jim Cameron and your teams deliver these highly complex and highly technical films that have so much heart. How does the internal discussion go to make sure that that, that none of that gets left behind? Well, I think, first of all, every film starts with a script, and I think the emotional beats were written and i give a lot of credit to the actors for brilliant performances and we do what we do as editors we just try to mine those moments and in the context of the story there are incredibly moving scenes and john worked on uh, one scene that i'm not going to say what it is because i don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it but it's one of the most heart-wrenching scenes in the movie and we saw that very early on and we were all moved by it so it's really i get choked up looking at at the film no matter how many times i've seen it if you have to suspend disbelief when you're involved with a film for so long there are times when you're just doing it and then there are times when you're watching it and trying to trying to put yourself in an audience from an audience perspective how they perceive that movie that's what you train for you know you gotta you train to remember your first reaction when you read the script then you, you train to remember your first reaction when you see the dailies or the capture and that's important you got to keep that with you at all times because you know, take to take to take is going to be different, and you got to remember which take was it that set you off. And uh, then at some point, you got to sit and be a part of the audience, like Steve said. And that's very difficult to do. And you got to just—it it comes with experience. And um, also, it helps to have preview screenings, though we couldn't do a lot of them on this movie. Yeah, we had to wait until enough of the film filled in with the minimum of template. I mean, it's very difficult for an audience to look and suddenly see actors in suits with dots, you know? I mean, you, that that takes you out right away. 
But Jim has a philosophy that you can only see the film so many times. And he tries to limit the amount of times that we watch it as a whole to try and maintain that perspective. Of course, when you're working on individual scenes, you're working on individual scenes, or you're working on a collective of scenes, or a, a, you know, a, whole, a whole section of the movie. But there's a conscious effort to keep it fresh yes. so that you never miss the emotional and the excitement yes. of seeing it. That's really interesting. Uh, it's award season. Uh, let us say this, women I think you guys will be hopefully um, nominated for Oscars again, and this time uh, go all the way. But aside from hoping that you both have a chance to take a break, what is your work cycle working like as far as moving forward on on uh, your next project? <laughs> it never stops. Never stops. <laughs> never stops. I mean, <laughs> we had a little break for the holidays, but we were already well underway with Avatar 3, and now the focus is full speed ahead. Fantastic. We hope that wherever David Brenner is, he's smiling on your your guys' magnificent achievement. And uh, we wish you all the best, like I said, through the awards season. We think it's the most deserving movie uh, this year. There have been a lot of great movies, but uh, none more impressive or deserving than Avatar The Way of Water and good luck with the sequels. That's so that's so kind of you to say. Of course, we never take anything for granted when it comes to that type of thing. But I do I know we're all the entire Avatar family is heartbroken that David Brenner didn't live to see all of his hard work, all of our work come to fruition. But I've got to believe somewhere he's watching the movie and smiling, as you said. Thank you both for coming on to the program. Wim and I will be right back. Wim, that was uh, that was an interesting conversation. Uh, John and and Stephen are are impressive what they they took on there. Absolutely, two passionate people, which which you know how so skillful, and I think they 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 try to say it in a very simple way, but I think it's a pretty complicated process that they really have been embarked on. Right, fantastic. Well, I think you and I probably know the filmmaking process less than the average person in our industry because it's not our part of the the job. But when you right. listen to what they are trying to achieve and that it's multiple sequels and they're underwater and they can't use aqualungs. They've got to teach the actors to hold their breath because they can't have bubbles get in front of the camera. You think, my gosh, these are difficult, uh, astoundingly difficult assignments these guys take on. No, amazing, right? And, and also, if you hear it, they talk about years, right? <laughs> Doing this. Yes. It's not about yes. me shooting for a month or something. So, so they really go very... Detailed, I would say, but also the fact that you hear them saying it, the cut has to be right, right? Because we don't want to, you know, edit too much in those things. So it, it really has to be uh, perfectly organized or prepared, you know, before they start shooting things. I heard Jim Cameron the other day say that in an interview that in 2009, when the first Avatar came out, there were only 6,000 digital screens worldwide that could project 3D, et cetera, et cetera. What's that number now? Well, I think we're close to... 200,000 screens worldwide, wow. right? So, wow. and, yeah. and that's, uh, so to just to give a little bit of feel, there's around 40,000-ish in, in North America. There's around 70,000 in China. And then you get another, you know, uh, close to 40 in Europe. So it really is, um, it's a massive expansion of the amount of, of digital projector capability, which is out there, right, to show a movie like this. So the, the notion of, could this movie have been possible 10 years ago? 
You know, the infrastructure wasn't built. And now, due, due to this movie and some others, and companies like yours, uh, Cineonic, the global cinema network is pretty much built out to do everything that, that filmmakers wanted to do? No, absolutely. I think if you, we talked about, you know, variable frame rates. So so that's been relatively seamless that that they've been able to, the exhibitors who wanted to show that on, on their projectors could do that, right? Ten years ago, that would be that would be a, quite a, an undertaking if you think about it. So, so I think the technology is getting more and more advanced in order to take advantage of those capabilities. Of course, James Cameron, how we makes a three D movie, it is it is probably one of the best done in the world, right? And and of course, that you see also when you're watching it. Um, and and I think that that's to his credit uh, how he does it. But but technology, of course, is helping it. That what he does is to to get to get that viewed in the in the most best way possible. Yeah, I think there are very few directors who can who can single handedly have such an impact on the build out of the technology in cinemas. And Jim Cameron has proved again and again that he is able to encourage the cinema industry to upgrade their technology. And for that, I think we all owe him a great debt of gratitude. Hundred percent. I mean, it, it's people like like James Cameron. For me, which is pushing the boundaries, right? Trying new things, getting into territories which have not been explored before, and from a technology point of view, that's what we need, right? And then getting a product out, getting getting a story out like this, which so many people enjoyed seeing, that then that we can only be proud about it as an industry, right? That that's what we can uh, can accomplish. Yeah. Our quote of the day comes from James Cameron in response to years of speculation and questions from Titanic fans about whether or not Jack Dawson could have survived on the raft with Kate Winslet's character in the movie's climatic final scene. Jim Cameron says, We have since done a thorough forensic analysis with the hypothermia expert who reproduced the raft from the movie. We took two stunt people who were the same body mass as Kate and Leo, and we put sensors all over them and inside them, and we put them in ice water, and we tested to see whether they could have survived through a variety of methods, and the answer was, there was no way they both could have survived. Only one could survive. The results of the study will be shown on National Geographic when Titanic is re-released in February. According to Cameron, Jack had to die for the purpose of the story. It's like Romeo and Juliet. It's a movie about love and sacrifice and mortality. The love is measured by the sacrifice. Thank you, John. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Wim. And thank you all for listening. The Insiders is presented by Cineonic and produced by the Advanced Imaging Society in Hollywood. Our executive producers are Adam Castles in New York and Mike Piltzecker in Los Angeles. Brett Harrison produced today's show, and our technical director is Matthew Bach Lombardo. This is AIS.